The last page has been turned on my most recent read and when I say I ummed and ahed for several hours, asked friends for advice and even posted polls on social media to determine whether I should leave this review for another week or not, I am not exaggerating. Seriously, go back in my social media history and you will see them. Obviously, I ignored the little voice telling me to wait a little bit longer because here we are. The book I am talking about today is probably one of the most anticipated fantasy reads of 2023. Limited editions sold out in hours and even before it was released it was all over social media and had been for months. The book I am talking about is Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros. So here I am, no spoilers, as opinion filled as ever and ready to roll all of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. Join me today as I head to a continent somewhere between the Arctile Ocean and the Emerald Sea as we revisit Violet, Zayden, Rhiannon, Redoc and the rest of the students of Baziath War College in the sequel to Fourth Wing, Iron Flame. I'm your host, Ray. Self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. November has so far proved to be a good month for books and I have had a few that I cannot wait to read arrive on my doorstep over the last few days. Iron Flame is just one of them. Before I start talking about the book, I will say if you haven't read Fourth Wing, then don't take a single step further unless you want to know the big twist that had people gasping in the first book because Iron Flame starts where Fourth Wing left off, so spoilers for the first book are unavoidable. She survived her first year at Basgiath War College, but the danger is only beginning. Everyone expected Violet Sorengale to die during her first year at Basgiath War College, Violet included, but threshing was only the first impossible test meant to weed out the weak-willed, the unworthy and the unlucky. Now the real training begins, and Violet's already wondering how she'll get through. It's not just that it's gruelling and maliciously brutal, or even that it's designed to stretch the rider's capacity for pain beyond endurance. It's the new vice-commandant who's made it his personal mission to teach Violet exactly how powerless she is, unless she betrays the man she loves. Although Violet's body might be weaker and frailer than everyone else's, she still has her wits and a will of iron, and leadership is forgetting the most important lesson Basgiath has taught her. Dragon riders make their own rules. But a determination to survive won't be enough this year, because Violet knows the real secret hidden for centuries at Basgiath War College, and nothing, not even dragon fire, may be enough to save them in the end. Spoiler alert, if you have not finished Fourth Wing yet and are planning to and hate spoilers, do not go any further. The book starts literally where Fourth Wing left off with the revelation that Brennan lives. 
Understandably, Violet wants answers, but it doesn't seem as though anyone is too keen to offer them, for what could they truly say? For almost a year, Zayden has been shielding the truth from her, while expecting her to trust him with everything that she is. It's perfectly understandable that she is not only furious with him, but angry with her brother, who didn't have to stand by and watch their father fade to a shadow of his former self after losing his son. Though she is horrified at the thought of what awaits her, and still haunted by the death of Liam, which still has me tearing up, Violet knows that she must return to Basgiath for her second year, for to not do so would risk everything that she is still trying to understand. The rebellion, her brother's part in it, the revelation that everyone in Navarre is being lied to about the existence of Venin and their wyvern creations and the danger that this presents to every person she knows. On her return to the college, with Zayden, Imogen, Bodhi and Garrick at her side, she is immediately greeted by Dane, and the knowledge that he betrayed her to his father, which led to the deaths of Liam and Soleil. These two deaths could have been avoided, and she is furious with him, understandably so, for using his power on her without her consent. A theme that I found disturbing and annoying in Fourth Wing, if I'm being completely honest. No sooner have the students returned than they are gathered for graduation, during which time Zayden is presented with his new responsibilities away from the college, and we are introduced to the new Vice Commandant, Varish, who, it is widely known, relishes training the students to withstand torture because it is something he enjoys delivering. He is brutal. Despite having proved herself absolutely capable of not only defending herself but also her friends, Violet's life is still in danger and it becomes apparent that she has now made a very powerful enemy in Dane's father who starts sending assassins after her with the intention of ending her before she can reveal the truth of what they discovered on the border that venins exist and they pose a huge risk to the sanctity of life as they all know it. While Violet is desperately trying not to get killed by the bloodthirsty and blindly loyal soldiers who have been sent to kill her and anyone who gets in their way, she is also trying to carry out her promise to Liam and protect his sister Sloane, who does her best to make everyone dislike her. Because seriously, for a 20-year-old who has seen war and suffering, she is an absolute brat for a considerable amount of the book. She is also trying to find out what is happening with Adan and Dana, who was sent into a premature growth sleep when she used her time-stopping powers to help save Liam. Oh God, every time I think about Liam, I want to cry because his death really hit me. But Ten seems unwilling to, um, to burden her with information that will distract her from staying alive, especially when there is nothing she can do to change what is happening in the Vale. Luckily for Violet and Zayden, despite their personal issues, they are given something of a, an opportunity to talk, though they seem to choose more often than not to waste it because of the bond that their dragons share, and every 14 days they have time together. Varish is determined to make it as difficult and uncomfortable for them as possible, searching Violet and insinuating that she is a spy at every opportunity. 
she does her best to hide her secrets from everyone, which goes some way to alienating Rhiannon, unsurprisingly, because she truly doesn't know who she can trust. But she also knows she needs to protect them from what she has in her head, because any risk of exposure could put everyone in danger. And here I have to stop my retelling because to go any further would reveal so much that I don't want to spoil for anyone who has plans to read the book. I have to say that so much happens in Iron Flame. Every page offers up a revelation that will either have you nodding and saying, oh my God, I knew it, or where the heck did that come from? And I love that about the story. It's an action-packed one that is full of unexpected twists and turns that never feel as though you're experiencing too much of an info dump, which can be a huge failing. This month, so far at least, has been simply a case of receiving pre-orders, especially this week. There were no impulse buys and the books I received were probably my most anticipated orders of the year. Iron Flame is a hefty tome at 623 pages and though my copy didn't arrive until the day after it was released, I managed to finish it in just over 16 hours or so, broken up a bit by work and a crummy night of sleep. And yes, that time does include taking pictures of certain pages to remind me of specific lines and rereading bits because I couldn't quite believe what I was seeing on the page. This book was only released on Tuesday the 7th of November and I have to be honest, though I was keeping a desperate eye on my email for a notification of posting and then my postman for signs of delivery, I didn't check out any sites for spoilers or look at Goodreads to see if anyone had been lucky enough to get a preview copy and left an early review. Then, checking out books I want to read on Goodreads isn't something I tend to do because there is always the risk that someone will post a very detailed and spoiler-ridden review and knowing my luck, I'll see something I really didn't want to because that's the way it always goes. The only indication I had of what this book could possibly be about was my own personal bingo board and my recent reread of Fourth Wing. When it comes to reviews, I think that they can reveal quite a lot about how different we all are as readers. While one person could love the book without question and it becomes something they have to share with everyone they know, for others it could be the book they dislike beyond all reason. Fourth Wing turned out to be quite a divisive book when it came to reviews, as those who didn't like it at all definitely wanted to get their word in, which is their right. The sheer number of reviews for that book across book platforms is unbelievable, currently standing at 686,433 ratings and 114,098 full reviews, and that's just on Goodreads. I'm not sure if this is the highest number of reviews for a book on the platform, but it is certainly up there. And this book only came out in May. Of course, everyone has their likes and dislikes, and every opinion is subjective. 
As always, I want to give you a balanced perspective because hearing views from both ends of the spectrum is important. Sure, I may not share them and they may have found something entirely different in the book when they read it, but that doesn't make their opinion or mine any less valid. This is how they felt about it. Of course, as I always say, don't let any of these reviews, including mine, sway you or make your decision for you. Kendrick gave the book just one star, having had issues with the quality of writing included in it. They said, I'll start by saying I DNF'd the first book. The simple fact is it was poorly written and operated without any type of logic. I will not rant and I can say I don't even need to read this book to know it's probably worse. The real question I'm asking myself now is how does the first book get published back in April and this one gets published six or seven months after? Like, come on, people. It shouldn't be rocket science to know that this lady is just freeballing or something. Honestly, maybe she is writing this with chat GBT, GPT or something. I would not be surprised. All in all, the first book was terrible and I'm sure this one will be as well. Also, the people rating this series can't be real. Like, how does the first book have as high a rating as Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn? Let's get real, people. Either people think Rebecca Yaros can write with Brandon Sanderson, or Brandon Sanderson can't write at all, apparently. I read that series, and I can assure you that Brandon Sanderson can write. Even Sarah J Mass with her A Court of Thorns and Roses series... Romance is not my thing, but I can admit that Sarah J Maas can write, and she surely writes a lot better than Rebecca Yaros. Nothing personal to the author, I just call it what it is. The actual cover of both books do look nice, though. It took me quite a while of forging through the one-star reviews that are already on Goodreads to find one that wasn't full of profanity, politics, or wasn't about the book at all. Okay, so this reviewer hadn't read the book and was judging it purely on the DNF'd um, fourth wing. But when I started looking yesterday, that's all I could find. As ever, I am refusing to step into the middle of an argument or join the discussion about an author, author that has so many people frothing at the mouth. And while this may anger some people, I am sticking to my guns. The podcast and reading in general are an escape from the things that are currently going on in my life, which are in themselves traumatic and messy. And I don't think that this is the place to talk about anything more than books and the stories that are being told. As always, it's interesting to look at what someone else thinks about a book I have already read. Not only does it make me consider elements that were already maybe niggling at me to the point that I wanted to rate something lower or higher than I did on initial reading, but it can help me put my finger on plot points that might increase or decrease my enjoyment of the book post-read. And that does happen. It's happened with a few books this year. Just listen to a few episodes and you'll hear me go, oh, I hadn't thought about that. I have to be honest, it is far easier to talk about a book in a more balanced way when there is a bigger collection of reviews to look through. With several of the books I have spoken about recently, there have only been a few reviews, which can make it harder, but I knew that that wouldn't be the case with Iron Flame due to the pre-release talk. 
Of course, as has been proven by the one-star reviews, that doesn't always mean it will be easy to find something I can review and use in the episode. Despite the fact that Iron Flame was released less than a week ago as I record this, there are already 37,099 ratings and 7,271 fully written reviews on Goodreads. Of course, this is as of Saturday. It's probably grown by now. The distribution of reviews is still very much skewed towards the higher end of the ratings, with 91% or 34,077 ratings of four and five stars and 2% or 1,044 one and two star ratings. Of course, this number is literally changing by the hour, so it could already be much higher when you look for yourself. I have no doubt that this figure will continue to climb. In fact, I have already had to update the figures in this episode three times while writing my notes. And I am sure that many will continue to rate without reading, a practice that I will admit grates on me just a bit. But I am not going to continue to bang on that particular drum. On Goodreads, the overall rating for the book currently stands at 458 which is very good, though lower than the prequel, which currently has a score of 4.65. Though this has dropped slightly since I reviewed the book back in June. Taking a look through the lower rated reviews, as I have already mentioned, a considerable number, if not the majority of them, marked the book as unread or unfinished, something that is incredibly common in the fantasy genre. Reading is a very personal thing and it's never more obvious than when reviewing fantasy and romanticy novels. Lily gave this book five stars and while there were a lot of high reviews to rate and look through, hers was the first I encountered that wasn't filled with spoilers that I don't want to reveal. She said, First off, I want to say that I appreciate the fact that this does not end on a cliffhanger in the sense that no one is in mortal danger. It's just a natural progression of the storyline. Second of all, I appreciate the fact that Violet and Zayden's relationship was so raw and real. Them talking about trust throughout the whole book and pointing out that relationships are not black and white. And it takes two. Chef's kiss. I love Violet's character. I know a lot of people had a lot of stuff to say about the information dumps in book one and how she would talk about history or facts to calm down. I actually do that and it helps calm me down. Also to see that in a character who has chronic pain like me, I feel so represented. The thing that I love about these books and that we don't get in a lot of romantic fantasy is a good balance between world building plot magic system with a full adult romance and I think that this book captures this precipice so well. Obviously nothing is perfect. There were a few time jumps in the second half that I kind of wish we'd not jumped but I'll live. It was a 600 plus page book. I love that we got to see more of the world. There was so much in the first book that foreshadowed events in the second and I am feral this is my favourite thing in the entire universe. I am so excited to see the rest of the story unfold. Depending on the way you like to spend your free time, sometimes there is nothing better than taking a little bit of 
uh, well, a few hours in my case, to read through a mass of reviews to see who did and didn't share your views of a book. It can be that a review provides an explanation of something that confused you on first reading, because personally, I do have a habit of occasionally skimming when I'm reading in a crowded or loud room, or simply reading to distract myself from something I am trying to avoid. Welcome to my world for the last few months. Being honest, this can lead to occasionally missing something that seems insignificant, but truly isn't when you get to the end of the book. When it comes to opinions, everyone is different, and that is certainly evident when it comes to reviews of this book. Though I have to be honest and say that this time the discussion points have been far more vicious than they were previously. Of course, what I want and need from a book may not be what the next person who picks it up is looking for. I love the idea of escaping into a novel and just ignoring everything happening around me. For a book is nothing but escapism but others may want something else entirely. Sometimes when reading reviews, I do wish I had the chance to find out what went on in the minds of the readers when they wrote it. Knowing that a re what a reader is thinking about the book and why they picked it up in the first place sometimes makes it that much easier to know why they liked it or didn't. Some reviews, it seems, are written by people with similar thoughts, but as anyone who has been part of a book club could tell you, this is something that happens often. If one person notices a plot hole, then the chances are others are going to see it too. However, I will always advise that you take any and every review with a generous pinch of salt. Do your own reconnaissance, as it were. I am always happy to give book recommendations. Seriously, I do a podcast about book reviews, as are most book readers. But like everything, they are very personal. So if you're searching for your next read and only have a little bit of time to find something, then start by thinking about TV shows and films you've enjoyed and the books you've already read that rate you rated quite highly and go from there. That's the first step to finding a book you may enjoy. There is no guarantee that any book you're recommended is going to be a top 10 read, but it's always worth taking a risk. Anyway, now I've told you about other people's views, let's get down to it. Here are my thoughts on Iron Flame by Rebecca Yaros completely spoiler-free. Well, as spoiler-free as it can get because there will be some fourth-wing revelations and 100% honest. Did I like the book? I don't want people coming for me and I'm going to say that now, but yes, I did. I'm not going to sit here and say that it was without faults, but a book that keeps my attention and pushes me to stay up way past a decent bedtime on the day after a nightmarish bit of insomnia had me up at 2am can't be all that bad. The book starts where Fourth Wing left off, with Violet recovering from a venom attack that had her on the edge of death, discovering that her older brother Brennan didn't die six years previously and is actually fighting with the rebels. This revelation had me gasping with shock when I read it for the first time. And if I am being completely honest, when I reread it just a few days before Iron Flame was passed into my grubby little hands. And they were grubby. I'd been cleaning out the litter tray. And they are little because I'm only four foot eleven. 
I anticipated a lot of character growth given the way that things had ended between Zayden and Violet, with her full of anger and resentment because he had repeatedly lied to her about his life, his motivation for doing certain things, and where his loyalties lay. That having been said, I can't actually blame him for the latter, because to reveal anything more than he had would be to sentence a great number of people to death, and they didn't deserve it. Of course, Violet isn't exactly an angel in all of this, though she does come out of the whole disagreement far better than her lover. She has moments of maturity, but I did often forget that she was meant to be almost 21 and needed to have at least an element of control over her emotions to prevent a deathly bolt of lightning from being released. Zayden is almost in his element when outside the walls of Basgiath and away from the scrutiny of the people who killed his friends and family. However, this does not mean that he is unaware of the risks, purely that he is secure in the familiarity of a home that most thought had been destroyed in the rebellion. As I'm talking about the rebellion, and I've mentioned that word several times, I'm going to mention one of the things that admittedly had me repeatedly referring back to earlier parts of both this book and Fourth Wing, and that was the timeline. We know that the rebellion led by Fenry Orson, Zayden's father, took place only five years before the events in the first book, so six years before the second. Zayden was made an orphan at 18, and after witnessing the death of his father, he offered himself up as a sacrifice to save the lives of the other, younger children of the rebellion. For this, he received 107 scars. And it is during this book that we discover this indicator of brutality was delivered by none other than Commander Lilith Sorengale, Violet's harsh and uncaring mother. The woman who literally told her daughter that if she entered the scribe's quadrant rather than the rider's quadrant, she would kill her. What kind of mother does that to her child, especially after already having lost one to war? Anyway... So that was probably a bit of a spoiler, but to be fair, if you didn't have that on your bingo card, then you did not see the tension between them at all in the first book. There is a lot of tension in this book between Zayden and Violet, caused not only by distrust and resentment on Violet's part, but also by the distance that is forced between them once Violet returns to Basgiath for her second year. The constant emotional to and fro that the couple experiences amidst the limitations placed upon them when they're separated due to Zayden's graduating and Violet's return to the rules of Basgiath is painful. At no point does it feel as though they are able to get to the real root of their problems. Violet is fully aware that Zayden is still hiding things from her and despite her attempts to get him to open up, he seems resistant as though there is still some distrust. Obviously, holding back is something that builds further problems between the two, giving Violet more reason to feel angry with a man who wants her trust and love but doesn't seem to be offering her the same opportunity in return. Zayden is clearly trying hard to reach Violet However, the chemistry between them, in bed at least, is what keeps on pulling them back together. And frustratingly for the reader, instead of talking through the issues that are simmering beneath the surface, they fall into each other's arms and seem to hope that sleeping together will wallpaper over the cracks. 
Newsflash, they do not. This particular method of problem solving is akin to having a baby when a marriage is in trouble. As most people will tell you, band-aid babies are not the solution. And in Zayden and Violet's case, sex is not a resolution for a relationship where there is little to no trust because one or other partner is lying. I think, for me at least, as much as I love and want Zayden and Violet to be endgame, trust me, the idea of it has me doing a little happy dance. The fact that there is so much emotional distance between them because they don't ever just talk makes me want to tear my hair out. I know that they are young, but they aren't doing A-levels at sixth form. They're preparing to go to battle and they might die. In fact, if one dies, the other will too. This, to me at least, says that they should perhaps sit down and have a conversation to clear the air rather than leap into bed or tussle against a wall for a few moments. Anyway, less of that, though sort of not, as I reveal something that could be considered a spoiler but maybe isn't in the form of Katrina Cordella. Am I pronouncing that correctly or is it Catriona? niece of the unscrupulous Viscount Takaris and sister to Cyrena, whom we met with the Griffin Riders at the end of Fourth Wing. Long before the rebellion and before his father was killed, a deal was struck and Zayden was betrothed to Catriona. While it appears that Zayden is over the entire arrangement and moved on with Violet, Catriona holds a lot of resentment, though most, if not all of it, is aimed at Violet, as though she had anything to do with Zayden's decision to end their betrothal and defend the children of the rebellion. There is no denying that this girl-on-girl animosity is problematic. Pitting Catriona and Violet against each other for Zayden's attentions is everything I have always found distasteful about films, TV shows and books. However, and bear with me because it's a big one, This is sadly real life. For all that everyone may like to see girls always getting along, no matter the circumstances, mean girls do exist. And though it is a cliche, Catriona is something of a mean girl. Instead of the dislike and anger being targeted at the one who deserves it, she goes for the girl she is jealous of. I hate to see it, and we've all been part of one of those conversations at some point in our lives. It's just one of those things. We spent a lot of the first book reading Brennan's thoughts, and his demise was a great contributor to Violet's negative feelings towards Zayden, his father, and his original cause. So when we got that incredible revelation at the end of Fourth Wing, I have to admit that I expected to get to know far more about the no longer dead Brennan. There was so much potential to build his character into something more than the brother who was trying to make up for missing a traumatic six years, including the death of their father. What we did see of Brennan showed that he had grown into a man who knew who he was and had started to take charge. I loved finding out what actually happened on the battlefield, which I am not going to get into, but I really did want to learn more about him what he had been doing over the six years and what had made him change his mind about the cause he had grown to fight against. I could probably spend forever talking about the characters, 
because I can't help but pour love on Violet's supportive and possibly overly trusting friends, Jacinia, Rhiannon, Rydok, Sawyer and Imogen. Of course, as we learned from pretty much every death in Fourth Wing, no one is safe from the chopping block. It's dangerous to get too attached. It took me a considerable amount of time, but Imogen has grown into one of my favourite characters. She's sarcastic and snide and always says what she thinks, which makes her stand out. She is loyal to the cause she has grown up fighting for and will do whatever is necessary to further it. One thing that really marks a difference between Violet in Fourth Wing and in Iron Flame is her ability to trust. I'm not going to say that she trusted everyone blindly when she first entered Basgath, but to a certain degree she was a little less cautious about trusting people who had previously shown themselves to be friends. I'm looking at you here, Dane Atos. As we enter the second year at BWC, any trust she had for Dane has been well and truly thrown to the wolves. But she is no less keen to add new people to her little group of friends, though they have their own reasons, namely Violet's mother's loyalties, for viewing her with caution. I can't talk about the college and its students without mentioning the professors. They are determined to make things worse for everyone. I know. Yeah, you don't need to tell me twice. I know they are in a difficult situation. They're in the midst of a war that they're afraid they're going to lose and trying to prepare these students for the possibility that they'll die. But in beginning their second year, new characters are introduced, including the heartless, suspicious and horrifying Vice Commandant Burton Varish. He follows the Riders' Codex to the letter, but this has led to him coming across as vicious. A friend of mine who is currently working her way through part two of the book said that the moment she met him, she wanted him to die the death of a thousand paper cuts, slow and painful. When she started reading the book, mine hadn't even arrived, but as soon as I started reading myself, I knew exactly what she meant, and I don't disagree. Okay, he may have a point he's doing a job, but he seems to find so much joy in causing pain in others that it churns my stomach. There was so much brutality in both books, but it's not gratuitous, which, after reading some fantasy novels where violence has been added purely to fit some sort of sick aesthetic, it was a relief. There were moments when I winced at the pain the characters were experiencing and I sort of longed for it to be over, but the events leading up to the pain were necessary to push the story forward and get us to the revelation at the end that I was sort of starting to anticipate around two-thirds of the way through part two. No review of this book would be complete without talking about Tan and Dana and the other dragons. Tan is his usual sarcastic self, making sure to not only protect his silver one, but also his young charge, who goes through a lot of changes and growth. I really want to talk more about them as characters, but to do so would reveal so much more that it could be probably considered massive spoilers. I will say one thing about Andana that she herself reveals late in the book, and that's the fact that the one-time golden feather tail waited over 200 years to hatch because she was waiting for Violet. 
That revelation alone brought tears to my eyes, partly because of the situation that brought about the revelation, but also because it was so beautifully delivered. The dragons aren't without their own conflict in Iron Flame, but they are resistant to human interference in resolving it. They don't depend on anyone, unlike the humans. One thing that I really loved about the book is that excluding a few of the bedroom scenes that frustrated me because they felt as though they were in place of real development and conversation, there were very few, if any, real extraneous moments. All character introductions, battles, conversations and horrific scenes of torture, and there were a few, were necessary to the plot and, as I learned when reading Fourth Wing, vital to the story. I'm sorry if you expect me to do the noble thing. I warned you, I'm not sweet or soft or kind, and you fell anyway. This is what you get, Violet. Me. The good, the bad, the unforgivable. All of it. I am yours. Will I read more by Rebecca Yaros? I have to be honest, as much as I love romance, military romances in general are not my thing, so the non-fantasy books she has already released are not on my list, though I have heard good things about them. But I will be waiting and eagerly anticipating the third in the Empyrean series. I get what some are saying in that perhaps this series should be a triptych rather than a pentalogy, if only because of the way that both books have ended. And I think that stretching it out is not necessarily a sensible thing. There is something about the way that she has moved the story along that makes me feel as though at some point a book will be filler and it will lose a considerable number of the eager audience. But then that's my review and others may well feel differently. I am looking forward to book three, but I think that it would be a more powerful offering if it were the last in the series. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. Wow. Now, this is tough, but I am probably always going to recommend the same books at this point. The first two in the Sparks trilogy by Kerry Law are Dragons, War, Dangerous Opposition and a central character who is treated as an outcast because she looks different. The first two books are already available and new covers have just been announced. The third book has yet to be released, but given the quality of The Sky Riders and The Riders Quest, I know it will be incredible. I will post a link to the author's website in the intro notes. November has begun, Halloween is over, bonfire night has been marked with firework displays and shops are stocking up on their Christmas decorations, cards and mince pies. The rest of the year feels as though it's going to pass in the blink of an eye. This week I have read a few books including Iron Flame and I have a beautiful edition of Bookshops and Bone Dust by Travis Baldry that I cannot wait to sink my teeth into. I do love cosy fantasy. I actually have a funny, maybe, but definitely frustrating story about my acquisition of that particular book. And I have to thank Waterstones for getting the issue resolved so quickly. 
My copy of Bookshops and Bone Dust was shipped, so it was due to arrive a few days before release. I waited eagerly for it and then noticed that the shipping information had it heading north when I actually live so far south you couldn't get more southerly in the country without ending up in the channel. Fast forward a day and the book has not only been delivered, but Royal Mail sent a confirmation email and a photo of some lucky so-and-so accepting my sprayed edge edition. As I said, Waterstones have now sorted it out and I have a fresh new copy, but I am confused as to how my copy ended up in Thetford, having gone through two sorting offices, a postal delivery worker and the end recipient. At no point did anyone look at the parcel and say, Oh, this isn't addressed for here. Though I have had a massive book buying blip of late, I have been far more restrained so far this month. I received my pre-orders, my one subscription box arrived on Saturday, and I have put on hold fairy loot as the books for November weren't ones I was interested in. So perhaps I will get through more of my TBR and accomplish my tidying goal by maybe the end of January 2024. I'm 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 just hedging my bets here, maybe say February. All of that said, books are my happy place and I have a lot going on in my personal life right now that makes things a little bit messy and quite a lot stressful. So perhaps taking it slow and not putting pressure on myself to stop buying is the way to go. Also, Christmas is coming and book lists are always being asked for. So if you have any book recommendations, perhaps a new author or a new genre you think I should add to my list, go for it. Email me at beingbookishpod at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram where I also post pictures of my current and planned reads. So check it out and give me a follow. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Instagram and threads as being bookish pod, on TikTok as being bookish reviews, and on X as being underscore bookish. Though I've been a little quieter on all socials as of late because there's a lot going on. Or you can check out my website for the podcast back catalogue and full written spoiler free book reviews at beingbookish.co.uk. Next week, I am returning to Carsley as I revisit Agatha, Charles, Roy, Tony and James. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.